Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is September the 26th. Um, I think we've officially crossed the end of summer here and uh, the unofficial end of summer with uh, your clean shaven face. Um, So bright eyed and bushy tailed, Brendan, what are we talking about this week? Baby making fun. You're making fun of me that before we came on, before we started recording, Ricky said I look like I'm 12, which I, I don't take offense to at my age at this point. Looking young is not uh, not an insult. <laughs> so fine. But yes, yeah, so you got me clean shaven for the next few weeks at least. But big week this week, Ricky, uh, not just in terms of the topics that we're going to discuss, but at the end of the week, we are heading down to Miami for your bachelor party. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, hopefully the podcast will continue post. <laughs> yeah. You don't hear from us for a while. It's, uh, for a while, it's set, you know, SOS, send one down to Florida. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to put out an episode next week, but that may be even too ambitious. Let's, let's just hope we can, we can do one in October. Yeah, indeed. But looking forward to that should be a great time, but in less happy news, we have three different topics this week, all of which are interesting, and all of which I do think have a through line that I would like to circle back to at the end of the episode. But the first uh, thing that we're going to talk about this week is Governor DeSantis's stunt, his decision to transport migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard here, which is an island here in Massachusetts, which really went off in a one media frenzy. It uh, caught all sorts of people's imaginations, but there's certainly more to the story that we're going to get into. After that, we're going to talk about something that we've wanted to talk about. You and I have talked about offline for a few weeks now, but we need to talk about here um, on the podcast, which is the water crisis that has been going on in Jackson, Mississippi. And finally, we're going to conclude by talking about the environmental disaster that is going on in Puerto Rico. So, Again, I do think there's a, a through line or maybe several through lines actually through those three stories. Um, and there, none of them are necessarily happy stories, but all of them are, are worthwhile discussing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I, uh, you know, some of them have been, some of them were one day affairs, others um, obviously sort of related to near term weather events and others kind of have been um, pervasive over the, you know, last couple of years, couple of decades. So um, it'll be interesting to see how, how you, how you weave them together. But I, I think, I think I'm seeing some of that as well. Sure. Um, so before we get into that, just a reminder, everybody of this podcast is being brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. If you've been listening for a while, you know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. You can check them out on Instagram, or you can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Um, Reminder, that's a cannon with two M's. Ricky, this is the last week I can make this joke, so I will ask you, maybe I just gave it away, but uh, what is a lumberjack's favorite month? 
I mean, I want to say September. September, of course. September. <laughs> there you go. Just a little twist. All right. Uh, when we come back, we will get into Governor DeSantis. So last week in an event that really captured the political world, it dominated news and social and print media. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida shipped two plane loads of about 75 to 100 migrants, most of whom were Venezuelan, from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, which is an island here in Massachusetts off the coast of Cape Cod. For those of you who aren't familiar with Martha's Vineyard, there are people that live there year round that are working class, blue collar people, but there is a sizable population of people that visit the island as a vacation destination. It's one of the more affluent vacation destinations, probably in the entire country. Um, And the most famous residents, the Obamas, bought a sizable plot of land there a a few years ago. Uh, But Martha's Vineyard has proclaimed itself a sanctuary city in Massachusetts, which is a sanctuary state, which is this term that came about a few years ago under President Trump's crackdown on illegal immigration, where some cities or certain states said that they would be a sanctuary for people that were here or here in the United States and who are undocumented. So this particular stunt blew up for a number of reasons. One, DeSantis has become really just a lightning rod political figure across the country. We profiled him in depth back in episode 54 with our friend Austin Jackson from Florida and went into depth about how what a meteoric rise that he has had over the past few years. And whatever we thought of him, his character or his politics, I think we both and all three of us really at least appreciated his political instincts. Um, he's been very calculated in how he's made a name for himself over these past few years. And once again, he has captured the headlines here. What's interesting to me is, in some ways, this was a one-time event. In other ways, this has been going on for a little bit. So for people that have been paying attention, this hasn't gotten a ton of news coverage, so I I wouldn't be surprised if most people weren't aware of this. Governor Greg Abbott from Texas and Governor Doug Ducey from Arizona have been doing this for months now. They have been busing migrants from Texas and Arizona up to the north, chiefly to Chicago, to New York City, and to Washington, D.C. Their arguments are, look, that the immigration policy of the United States is broken, the process at the border is broken, and what you have is a lot of northern states saying that they are sanctuary cities and supporting these, quote-unquote, undocumented or, quote-unquote, illegal immigrants, while not having to deal with the issue at all. It's real easy from afar to say that, hey, we support anybody that's coming to our border, but then when people are literally in front of your house or in your backyard, it's a little bit different. And so that was kind of the messaging from Abbott and Ducey of like, look, if you support this, you deal with the problem then. Here, just a small taste of what we're dealing with all of the time. What I think escalated this is one, DeSantis is much more well-known nationally than Ducey or Abbott. Two, Martha's Vineyard is a unique place. It's not just New York City. It's this little like haven of a lot of affluent, largely white people in Massachusetts. Um, And it's brought attention to the issue 
for sure. There's a lot more to say about it, but Ricky, what were some of your thoughts upon uh, hearing about this, about DeSantis' stunt? Yeah, I, I, I had a, a lot of thoughts. Um, I guess, I guess I want to come back to one of the things that, that you sort of are talking about with this, this idea of like the sanctuary cities are like inviting illegal immigration. And I don't actually think that that's what is meant by the term sanctuary city. What most of these places are doing um, is they're saying we're not here to prosecute immigration crimes. And I know that that sounds like the same sort of thing that we're, we're trying to foster illegal, illegal immigration and like actively in support of it. But I think there are actually some important distinctions. Like the idea is that by not being out here trying to, you know, do ice raids and like other things like that, we are making a space for people who live here. We understand that they live here, whether they got here legally or not, and they use or they're they're part of our community. And so if they live in fear of constantly being deported when they're victims of crime, when they commit a crime, say like a vehicular accident or something, they're going to be far less likely to sort of behave as if they're part of the community because they're first and foremost afraid of getting deported. So like, you know, Massachusetts right now has a a, a sort of a bill that's out there trying to get um, or trying to be able to allow undocumented people to get driver's license without proof of citizenship or proof of like legal residence. Right. So there are, I I think that that is an important distinction because it, it's not like a, we're trying to foster an open borders policy. It is more that we're understanding that people come here both legally and illegally. They live here, they work here. And so we, we want them to be a part of the community because it's just a, a reality that we live in. So that I, I think that that's one thing I, I definitely wanted to put out there. Um, curious if you agree or disagree. But then on the particular stunt, right? Like we talk about Martha's Vineyard. Um, the, I, yeah. I mean, I think I think there's like the the first cut or like the first the superficial optics of it it's like we're going to teach those liberal elites what it's like to have to deal with migrants and we're going to send these guys to martha's vineyard but then the actual reality on the ground of what he did right first of all he's in florida railing about immigration but has to go to texas to find his migrants to send to martha's vineyard then of course martha's vineyard true uh, you know a a you know, you could call it a bastion of liberal elitism, but also a place that just doesn't have resources to deal with these kinds of issues because they don't deal with these kinds of issues. And you wouldn't really expect them to. Putting these people, got to remember that they're people, um, on a plane, sending them somewhere that is not notified that they're going to arrive, like trying to create a disaster. Um, and then kind of a spectacular failure, right? Like I kind of think in his mind, he was hoping that like, I don't know what the liberal elites would band together to like put them on a boat and like try and send them into the Atlantic or something. And instead they actually, they like figure out how to take care of these people and they do a pretty good job of it until 
you know, until they move them to a bigger facility in on mainland Cape Cod. So, yeah, I mean, to to me, I, I think obviously he was going for like some kind of big symbolic gesture. Certainly did his thing in getting people riled up and getting media attention. I think in the, at the end of the day, the symbolism here is is kind of a is kind of a, a failure. And I wonder how sort of obviously you have people who are like super jazzed about it. Um, but it really plays into the fact that when progressives are like you treat immigrants as if they're not human beings, that he like actually did something to treat them as if they're not human beings, as if they're political pawns and how that plays with sort of the center right Republican. who's was like, yes, I believe Im- illegal immigration is a problem. Do I think that Ron DeSantis in treating people like this is going to be a, a solution oriented guy is going to think of, think about what we actually need to do to fix this problem. I would, I would argue that this doesn't bolster his case as like someone who knows um, what he's doing. And I think to your other point of like someone who's been more calculated has been sort of like very much in the vein of Donald Trump, but with a lot less of the kind of pomp and circumstance is now kind of leaning in that direction. And I wonder if that helps him or hurts him. So said a lot there. Take it where you will. Yeah, I think the thing that you brought up that has bothered me the most about this whole thing is that these are people. And I think no matter how people on any of these sides talk about immigration, the, the many immigration issues that I think you and I and probably the vast majority of people would agree that this country has, that the immigration policy is, is broken. We're talking about actual people. And it's it's far easier for anybody anywhere in the country to talk about policy it, as, as something almost separate from people. But ultimately what this is, is like, these are people's lives that are being affected by it. And so I hate that he used, because I think for him, it, it is a political stunt, like I mentioned. And the other reason besides like his own personal like brand and besides being Martha's Vineyard was that like, you're right, he went to Texas to get these people. It's, it's different than Ducey or Abbott shipping people from like their own borders it's it really felt felt like he wanted to make this a a media story and he he's using people to do that and that really bothers me on the other hand i don't know that i would say it was a failure because everyone's talking about it we're talking about it and it's something that people largely weren't talking about before even though abbott and ducey have been doing this for months no one has really besides people real deep down in like political news media have have been talking about this issue. And so the cynical part of me wants to be like, this is, you know, midterms are coming up again. And all of a sudden immigration is a big issue again. And Republicans who maybe are feeling like they didn't have a lot of issues on their side with the Dobbs decision with abortion or with guns, or now that Biden's approval ratings are coming back up and Congress actually did some things, Republicans are grasping for straws here. And well, of course, what's what's an old reliable? Let's go to illegal immigration and, and crime and, and, and those sorts of things. On the other hand, it's, again, I will keep coming back to like, our immigration policy has been broken for a decade or many, several decades at this point. And this is an issue that people in border, border states are dealing with all of the time. And... Yeah, of course, Martha's Vineyard wasn't equipped to handle it, but 
what what did they do? I, mean, I think from the liberal perspective, you're like, wow, they were actually really welcoming, and then they put them in a place to take care of them. I think from a conservative perspective, you're like, all these people that champion these like liberal values within 48 hours, they had everyone shipped off their island and placed somewhere else so that they don't have to deal with them personally. And obviously that would be better because like the army base on Cape Cod is more equipped to actually deal with them. But I mean, that's not wrong. Like Martha's Vineyard was immediately like, see ya, like we're, we're, we're not dealing with this. Uh, and uh, this isn't, I found it a little humorous, but if anybody's film familiar with the uh, Homer Simpson gif that's on of him like retreating back into the bushes, there's been a funny one going around about Matthew's Vineyard with Homer's holding the sign that's like Black Lives Matter and science is real and love is love and no one is illegal. And they're like then that are retreating back into the bushes and coming out with the no trespassing sign. Uh, and there is a little bit of that. So I think in terms of showing some hypocrisy and in terms of making this an issue in the media, like he wanted to, I, I don't know that it was a failure. Yeah. I, I, I still, I guess I don't really agree with the hypocrisy point of it. I, I mean, I think it's just a logistical fact that Martha's Vineyard does not have housing because it's a small Island. And like, you know, you, you mentioned sort of the blue collar people. There aren't very many blue collar people that still live on Martha's Vineyard. Most of the ones that work there live off island and take a ferry to get into work you know regularly and obviously they get a bunch of seasonal guys you know seasonal employees um immigrants from many parts of the world i know there's like a pretty pretty big like european population that comes into cape cod to work for the summers in in general i mean like i i think i think you know the idea is we'll send them to Martha's Vineyard. So they have to send them back. And then we can say, look, they don't want them there. And it's like, okay, you know, maybe they don't want them there, but also maybe it's just like an impractical reality. And then there are other cities, you know, we're not, you're not hearing about them getting put on a plane and sent back to Texas. Right. Because that's just not, you know, what, what we're doing here in Massachusetts. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Republicans really want this to be a statement of hypocrisy. And that was like the point, right? Is we're going to send them there and they're going to send them back. And then we're going to say, see, you don't even, you know, even you don't want them. But I don't, I don't know that that's really what happened unless you like kind of grasp at straws to paint it that way. I like, I like Martha's Vineyard is a small Island. That's just a physical reality of what it is. I, I think you can, I, I suppose, I think you can take it in, in both directions. And from the symbolism, I guess it, I guess it works. I think the reality is more of what you're saying, right? We actually have had some kind of not wins, but maybe galvanizing things on the left. And this is a way to refocus, you know, gas prices falling. And as you know, you mentioned about the Dobbs decision, um, and obviously this student student debt situation, although I don't exactly know how as how well that's going to really play out across the electorate. But um, this is a way to refocus kind of the attention on what's what's sort of been a sore spot. Right. Democrats have had kind of this idea around immigration, but really no policy. And the Republican policy, of course, of like no immigration is. Um, at least a policy, whether tenable or um, kind of misplaced. I mean, I think that's up for debate. I, I, I do think in the end, like 
they're more hoping for some type of national crime by someone that's an illegal immigrant. Like that's an easier way to refocus the attention and like, you know, say they're sending our criminals or rapists and whatever, which is factually incorrect, but it's much easier for that to play along in the national press. And then this type of stunt, I just, I don't understand how it, it, I mean, it is exactly what you said. It's like, it's meant to do exactly what it's doing, but I don't know if people look at it and say, here's a guy who's got solutions to this problem. Yeah, I I think that's fair. Uh, But I, to come back to the larger picture is this Congress has done a lot. So I actually don't really want to criticize you. Congress can't tackle huge issues all the time. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Like there's only so much political capital and emotional capital you can spend to get things done. And this Congress has done many things. With that said, this seems like one of those things where Democrats obviously railed against President Trump's immigration policies, understandably so. They're in power. They've been in power for two years. And like, I don't know that the problem's better. It might actually be worse in a lot of ways. Biden continued a lot of Trump's policies at the border, which hasn't gotten much of any coverage. And there are, as I've mentioned before, like record crossings at the border. And I know that there are, well, at least what's been reported, that, that there's like pretty fierce internal debates at the White House of one of the ways actually to solve this would be if the federal government actually went and bust a lot of the migrants that are currently just like at the border in Texas and Arizona up to northern cities that have capacity, have the space, have the resources. We're not, we're not just talking the New Yorks and Chicago, but we're talking Illinois and Wisconsin and North Dakota and places where like they actually have room in for, for migrant workers and they, there's the economy could use workers. And, and it's like, this is actually a legit policy, but there's just been nothing done. And I do think that's frustrating. And I, and again, it's really easy for me in Massachusetts to talk about this, you know, this crisis that exists. If you're actually living on the border in Texas and Arizona, you're dealing with this crisis every single day, whether you are a government official or you're a regular citizen. Is they, that? And I know that the federal government gives resources to these places, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy when your schools and your hospitals and your, your housing developments, you, you're having to deal with all of these these people who, again, to come back to it, these are real people who have like real needs and the federal government has to do a better job. DeSantis think he was wrong in doing this, but he's not wrong that this is an issue that needs to be solved. Yeah. And I mean, I, I actually think that that is a potential, at least a stopgap measure to, I mean, migrants in detention is such a, like a waste of human capital and waste of our own resources to detain them. When when we know that for the most part, these people are showing up at their court dates, they are like doing the things that they need to do for the most part, right? And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, first of all, all of those like asylum cases are backed up because they're being seen by like the four federal judges that live in these states or in these areas, whereas we have judges across the country that could deal with this. And it's totally fair to say that it shouldn't just be a Texas and Arizona problem and it's, sh- and there should be some federal coordination. And I think, I, I mean, like, personally, I, I think like an Abbott or a DeSantis coming out and being like, we want to work with some democratic governors who believe that immigration is good for this country. And we want to figure out how we can, whatever, but obviously that's not the case here. But I mean, I, 
I think you're right. And perhaps that does need to come from the, from the top down. Um, yeah, because the current situation is, is not, is just, it's just not, it's not good. There needs to be some changes to it. There don't, there doesn't seem to be any momentum for it. So I guess, yeah, if we're looking for a silver lining, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll hear more about it. Unfortunately, I feel like doubtfully so, at least until after the midterms. Well, at least we agree. (laughs) That's, that's something. All right. uh, When we come back, we will talk about the water crisis that has existed in Jackson, Mississippi. So I said the water crisis that has existed in Jackson, Mississippi, because it has existed now for months and has been exacerbated far beyond any breaking point in recent weeks. So Jackson, Mississippi is a city in Mississippi, is, is a city in Mississippi uh, of about 150,000 residents. Their residents are about 83% black and about 25%, about a quarter of them live below the federal poverty line. Since July, Jackson residents have been under a boil their water order. So they've been any water that you plan on using for any of your daily needs you should boil it before you use it to make sure that it's it's safe and healthy to use. Back three weeks ago now, at the beginning of September, there was record rainfall in the Pearl River, which caused the water treatment plant to malfunction. And the water was no longer safe to even boil. It was as bad, as dirty as it can be. And residents were told not to use the water at all. While it has gotten better in recent weeks, uh, residents are still boiling water, but many are still using bottled water. And the fact that even that this was even an issue for several weeks is incredibly disturbing and distressing. This obviously isn't the first time this has happened here in the United States. It happened most infamously in Flint, Michigan, eight years ago, I believe. And now it's happening again in Jackson, Mississippi. There are certainly parallels between the two cities, but there are many other places that are also dealing to a less severe extent with this issue. But it's just, in some ways, Ricky, it's unfathomable to me that in 2022, here in the United States, a major American city can't deliver water to their people. Yeah. Um, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that unfathomable is definitely the right word. I don't know why my phone keeps doing this. It's uh, it's on silent. Sorry about that. It's, uh, <laughs> um, but it it these types of infrastructure, water, roads, you know, energy things that we really just like take for granted, um, seem to be coming up more and more. And I think it's nowhere more uh, concentrated or. Um, evident than in poor predominantly black communities um, like Jackson. And so I, w- I was trying to figure out, right, like, I mean, the the story is really chronic underfunding in the system. Um, you know, where, where did they go wrong? And now it's like past a point of kind of no, no return. And what meant, you know, many residents are saying, yeah, right now it's come to a head where for two weeks, like we didn't have any water. And then the water we had was completely Brown. Um, that for years, you know, 
nobody drinks water out of the faucet. Like that's unheard of. You got to pass it through at least a filter, probably boil it too. Um, which is crazy. Of course, living up in, in Boston, I mean, we have like phenomenal tasting water and I would, I don't, don't ever think twice to use water that comes out of the faucet to do anything. And so the question becomes like, how did we go in these completely opposite directions? Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. A lot of sort of the analysis is that look like tax, local tax bases, city tax bases pay for infrastructure like water. You go to a place like Jackson, Mississippi, or like Flint, Michigan, that are predominantly black, the property values are low. So the city taxes are low. Um, and now you have a situation where, you know, you're making these choices of what do we spend these dollars on and the dollars don't go to infrastructure that kind of works. Um, and that's like, it. it's unfortunately like a tried I mean, it's something that we're seeing across the country, right? Like our bridges, um, roads have for, for the most part, I think been pretty good, but bridges have been a huge sore spot. Now water infrastructure, we've seen what's going on in our energy infrastructure with it not keeping pace with, um, kind of the changes in our climate. So there's, there's this sort of I don't know. I like when I start to think about these things, obviously there's like the local, the hyper real uh, circumstances that people are living under. And those are horrible. And we should try and understand like some of what's driving that and figure out as a country, as you know, a city state country, can, can we address some of these issues, but also like thinking more broadly in, in some like arc of history type of thing, this is something that kind of happens to, to empires as they age, right? Like you build brand new from the ground up and for a hundred years, 150 years, everything you have is the leading technology. But then these things that we have that we take for granted no longer become the focal point. Like restoration doesn't get you anything new. And so it doesn't get the funding um, or right? Like replacing a pipe. If, if I turn on my faucet and I still get water, I might not replace that pipe until all of a sudden that pipe is broken. But now we're like getting to what feels like an inflection point where a lot of our infrastructure is just old and we have not been dealing with it. Um, because it's like almost human nature to take this stuff for granted. So yeah, there's, I, I feel like there are a lot of levels here. Um, I don't know where do you want to start. There are a lot of levels. I've mentioned this many times in pockets before. I coach a middle school debate team. And every year, so we're part of the Boston Debate League, but the Boston Debate League is also part of the National Urban Debate League. So there's a league in New York and Chicago and Atlanta and Houston and Detroit and LA. And every year we choose the topic. And two years ago it was criminal justice reform. And so all the cities vote and we choose one topic that we're all going to debate across the country. And so two years ago, criminal justice reform, my kids were super into it. It was like, it was perfect timing. Last year was uh, water resources. 
And my kids just weren't as into it. And I totally understood why, because to them, they didn't understand the urgency. They didn't understand really the debate about around water resources, because like you say, they grew up in and around Boston where knock on wood, we have been incredibly fortunate that, as you said, we never have to question of our water that we can just turn on our our taps our faucets uh, we can shower we can flush our toilets and we know that we have clean water and running water in our house but other places in the country aren't so lucky and that's what i try to stress to them but jackson is one of those places and it's you, you can't talk about this without talking about race and i you alluded to it and i maybe skirted around it but this is a majority black city in and it, this just doesn't happen in majority white cities. And I, I like when we talk about systemic racism, this, this is this is what we're talking about. This is where redlining policies have kept black housing values down, where when the Brown decision was enforced in in Jackson, white people fled from the city, taking their money and the tax base out of the city. Then when black middle-class residents looked around and they were seeing crime and poverty, they didn't want to live there either. So they fled to the suburbs too. And so what are you left with? You're left with largely lower income and poor people that are there. And so Mississippi passed a bill last year to remedy some of the water resources, because as you said, the the Mississippi, uh, like the, their, pipe, their pipes, their uh, the water infrastructure was built in 1914. So it's 108 years. And this is probably true of many major American cities. But when they were trying to get some of that money to Jackson, Governor Tate Reeves, who was a white Republican, said, well, maybe they should work on collecting their water bills first. And like, I understand that point. Like, he's not wrong if like Jackson, as you said, like cities need to collect revenue to build their infrastructure. So he's looking at it being like, they're not doing their own job, but they can't do their own job for systemic reasons. And uh, this is, goes back to like the DeSantis thing where these are like human beings. And so we can talk infrastructure policy all we want, but just reading this about this one woman, she's 35 years old. She has, she has two kids, 10 and 11. She says over the past few weeks, they wake up and she doesn't know whether any water is coming from her tap. She has her kids, again, they're in fourth and fifth grade, brush their teeth with bottled water. Then they go out to the nearby church to go and get more water that they can bring to school with them. Then when they come home, they use a garden hose to fill buckets of water to run their toilet. It's it's like it, it's it's like I said, it's all incomprehensible. It, like that's what 10, 11 year old kids are doing in our country these days. And she says she works for a, she's like an elderly caregiver. She goes to the next town over. No issues. Why do they have no issues? They're largely middle upper class. They're largely white. And so uh, there's, like you said, there's a lot of levels to the story, but this is systemic racism in action. Like the, the same thing with Flint is now happening in Jackson. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, I think your sort of recounting of what they go through on a daily basis is important because if you think about how somebody is supposed to kind of get ahead in life, like maybe go to school. Well, if you're in a poor community, you got to go to school and you have to work. And then you got to spend three hours a day, just figuring out like where you're going to get water from. It's not, it's not possible to make the kinds of progress that you think that we, or that, that we think sort of needs to be made um, in order to get those higher incomes in order to right? like, there's, it, there's something cyclical about 
what's happening here that we have to recognize and the idea that like oh well they need to just pay for it i mean I, you know i i guess i i wonder what you think about this as as you know when i think about my like the roots of my progressivism or where i think there's sort of a role for big government as you might call it is that like some of these fundamental needs in a country as wealthy as ours should be met for all people and you can make whatever arguments you want about the adults but you were talking also about the fourth and fifth grade children who are similarly without water and similarly have to spend time in their day instead of learning instead of playing and socializing trying to figure out you know what to do about this problem that people caused well before them and you can already see how it's like it's setting them back right like there's no way that they could be expect they on 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 the whole could be expected to do as well as kids who just don't have to deal with those problems and they're going to live in those communities you know for the foreseeable future because that's where their opportunities lie and like this is this is the i think the fundamental frustration when it comes with like yes agreed that people should have to uh contribute but there's got to be some understanding that here in america maybe like we can pool our resources to make sure everybody has water and that like yeah that you know you should be forced to pay for stuff but but maybe the basic necessities aren't those things sure and i want to quote another an, an elderly member of, of jackson and he was saying that he hadn't trusted jackson's water in decades and he was making the point that that distrust of water of like not believing that you can drink out of your own tap or even like shower in clean water says it just adds like an extra layer of stress to his life and like in those stressors include like crime or unstable housing or potentially like uh, food insecurity, all of those stresses that like anybody has, and particularly any like poor people have, and particularly any like poor minorities have, like it's one of those, as you say, it's cyclical where it just builds on it on itself. And there are these just like psychological stresses that make life more difficult that a lot of people, including myself, never have had to deal with. And to go back to Flint, we were saying about uh, five years after the initiation of the disaster back in 2014, 20% of adults had clinical depression. And like, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's shocking in that you're talking about one in every five residents in a city is depressed, but like when you are dealing with water, when you feel like you've been left behind and no one cares if you have clean water, when you are stressed every day about providing clean water for your families, I, it's, I literally, I can't imagine it. And um, he's, you want to say, he's like, it's a third, he's like, a, it's like a third world country over here. And that's, I don't know how anybody could disagree with that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, it, sorry. I'll just keep going. But like, it's Mississippi, as most people probably know, has like the worst health in, in the country. Like if you were, if you were ranking states, Mississippi's health is always like last, but while there are many, many issues contributing to that psychological stress from these issues all only exacerbates those existing health issues. And that's, I, I, it, it's like, yeah, like I said, it just gets, keeps getting cyclical to go back to your point about 
the the, the resources and investment. That, that's why the bipartisan infrastructure framework was such an important bill that quite honestly, we, I think, made a big deal of it here on the podcast, but hasn't gotten enough credit and attention in the media. And Biden was up here last week touting like Terminal E here at Logan Airport. That's great. But what, what really matters is the stuff, because like you, you tout it because you can see it, right? You're like, oh, look, we're building this new terminal in your airport. We can point to like what the dollars are doing. But what's far more important, but is far more difficult to take credit for and run on is like, we're replacing your pipes so that you are going to have clean water for the next X number of years. And the bipartisan infrastructure framework put 50 billion towards water resources, which is a, an incredible investment and is a, obviously a super needed investment. Now, the question becomes, does it get to the places that need it the most? You know, Mississippi, I think, gets 430 million of that which is a huge number for a state that is not super populous. But now Jackson's going to have to fight with all of the other cities and towns in Massachusetts to, to get a portion of that. And so this is where maybe you and I, and I'm sure reporters, actual reporters, will have to keep an eye on where, where do the dollars go? Because as they go out, are they going to the communities that need them the most? Yeah. And I mean, th- this is one of those things that's that's really interesting, right, for Mississippi as a state, because... I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, each state will get a, a proportionment from the federal government, but then it will be on the states to re- effectively distribute um, the federal funding. Uh, and in Mississippi, where you have, I, I actually don't really know, but I guess I, I'm, I'm guessing a predominantly white, predominantly Republican legislature, but you do have a few of these cities that are predominantly black like how how that exactly will play out uh i think i'll yeah well as you said it's something we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on because a lot of this stuff like the high level piece here's a huge chunk of money here's where it's going makes a lot of sense but actually tapping into that money is not it tends to be easier said than done like there's a lot of navigating that people have to be able to do in order to to really see the benefit of those dollars at the end of the day which i think historically has not been managed very well and so we'll have to see kind of how it goes going forward i think one of the cool things about the age that we live in is that there's so much more access to information and people are heightened to a lot of the historical problems or like you know what i mean they're they're aware of them and so they're looking for them um maybe i mean you can argue in some ways maybe too much but i think in this instance um i I don't know that you can be too vigilant um so yeah hopefully it gets better and hopefully for the residents you know the current situation gets significantly better soon but hopefully there's kind of like a long-term um play here as well agreed when we come back we will head over to puerto rico to talk about another unfortunate situation so last week hurricane fiona slammed into the island of puerto rico dumping more than two feet of rain on some places and causing mudslides and destroying homes the storm it 
on its own would have been devastating to any place. It is particularly devastating to Puerto Rico, which is still in some ways recovering from Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island five years ago. Ricky, there are unfortunately natural disasters that happen all the time, certainly as we've noted on this podcast, increasingly so in recent years. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this was because Puerto Rico is just such a unique place. Most people know that it's not a state, but it's a United States territory. So people that live there are American citizens. And it's just in this weird limbo that obviously being an island in off, you know, off the Gulf of Mexico is prone to hurricanes and other natural disasters. And it just feels like they're being left out to dry, obviously the opposite of that, pun not intended, but totally intended, uh, where they they have like just the worst of all situations. They they are more prone to natural disasters, but they don't necessarily have their own government, but they also don't necessarily have the full support of the United States federal government. And it just feels like it's a situation I want to talk about because it doesn't feel right. Yeah. um, I think they went on another handful of days without power, similarly without running water. Um, Yeah. I I think it's something Puerto Rico has somewhere between, I want to say like a million and a half to maybe 1.7 million residents and over half of them right now are without electricity, which, yeah, I mean, if you think of any like state in the United States where 50% of the residents are w- without electricity and subsequently because of how they kind of, you know, pump water out of the ground and, and how they, you know, provide water to their residents, ele- no electricity means r- r- effectively no running water. Um, I mean, it feels like we owe them some more protection than than they're than they're getting right now if 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 we're going to kind of treat them as like under the umbrella of the united states and you know we i think there are certainly reasons to talk about their political status and and what that should be but the humanitarian situation is as you say like it's always important to remember that there's like a long-term solution and then there's what we have to do for the people who are there right now. Um, and yeah. And they, I mean, they have a number of different problems. They used to have like kind of a state run ish electrical system, which they overhauled and basically privatized. And, you know, a big difference between Maria five years ago and, and Fiona um, is that Maria was a category four and Fiona is a category one. So obviously both, Anytime we're talking hurricanes, we are talking pretty, pretty severe storms, but the degrees of severity between a four and a one are pretty stark. And so the fact that, you know, a a category one storm is, you know, put half the island out um, is, is concerning, (laughs) is, is very concerning. Has to be. And like you said, Maria was far more destructive killed almost 3,000 people. And speaking of power, people in Puerto Rico were without power for 11 months. 
And obviously that wasn't everybody, but the fact that there were people that had no power in their homes for almost a year, it's, it just wouldn't happen on the U.S. mainland. And most infamously, the federal government's response was like epitomized by President Trump showing up briefly and like tossing out like rolls of toilet paper and paper towels to people. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like he was handing out like souvenirs at a carnival. It was like incredibly disrespectful. But that's it's just that's my thing. It's just it wouldn't be this type of response wouldn't be tolerated. And if there were if there was such a disaster in New Orleans or Miami or Houston, like places where who have had these terrible disasters, they've been the federal response hasn't been great, but it's certainly been bigger than it has been, and it captures more attention than it would in Puerto Rico. And I understand it. so, like. Short term, the Biden administration, to their credit, said they would pick up the next month of the federal government would pick up the next month of costs associated with this, like debris clearance and emergency aid and those sorts of things, which is is great and important and certainly a step up from what the federal government did five years ago. But to your longer term point, it just feels like we got to get this figured out. And I don't personally have strong feelings if Puerto Rico wants to cut itself loose and be its own nation if they want to join the United States. But it just feels like this limbo that they're in every time a bad situation comes up, it makes it, it exacerbates it because they're in this this weird in-between situation. And so, yeah, like, like all three of these, I think that there are short-term issues because again, there are people that are without power and without power, without food that are, are suffering that we need to do more to help. But there are longer term issues that we we can't just keep being reactive in the face of immigration crises. We can't be reactive in the face of natural disasters or infrastructure disasters. These are problems that exist and waiting to try to solve them ends up in just more humanitarian crises. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great sort of thread um, or way to connect them because politically it feels like we have a problem, right? Like a lot of these issues are ones that require kind of long-term investment to improve situations that many people don't, you don't feel them regularly. And it's like, for politicians to kind of campaign on, we want to maintain the status quo. We want there to be running water, but in order to do that, you know, X, Y, Z else thing that you've talked about that you want is going to have to go on the back burner because we haven't invested in this in so long. And that is a challenge. It's not a, it's not, it's not a sexy sort of political, um, Ploy really to sort of campaign for like here are all the things that we've been used to um, and we want to keep being able to rely on them but in order to do that we have to spend money um, in order in order to do that we have to make choices and so these are hard choices that we have not wanted to make for a long time like I mean the energy infrastructure piece of it um, I mean the situation in Puerto Rico sort of notwithstanding there's you know, we have over the last like five ish years had some of the cheapest electricity prices in the world because of plentiful natural gas for a number of different reasons. But we didn't take that time to 
invest in anything, right? Like we could have actually kept costs flat from like 2014 to 2020 and had huge surpluses and billions of dollars that we could have reinvested into infrastructure. Instead, we went for cost reductions, which obviously have tons of other benefits, right? Make our industries more competitive, whatever, whatever. But at, to some degree, you know, you have to make, pay, pay the piper, so to speak. Like there's, we pay for insurance with the hopes that we'll never need it, but you still have to do those types of things. Um, and we haven't in so many different places for so long. And so, yeah, whether it's immigration or water or energy infrastructure and hardening, it's so much stuff that we have to think about that may not actually improve our lives, but actually may just make what we have more secure. Then they prevent this stuff from happening. This this stuff that is happening in, in Jackson is unacceptable. This ha- stuff that's happening on our southern border is unacceptable. The the stuff that's happening in Puerto Rico is maybe in some ways unavoidable, the natural disasters, but it doesn't have to be this bad. And so it's, yeah, like you said, you, you summed that up really well. It's it's hard to run on stuff like that, but it's critical and no one cares until something terrible happens and people don't have running water or or people have no power. And that's, it, it's just, it sucks that it has to come to that point. And I guess my, my other through line besides like the long-term issues that are manifesting themselves in short-term media bouts of like media attention is that like, look who these things are affecting. They're affecting Venezuelans. They're affecting Puerto Ricans. They're affecting black Americans. And it's just stuff that I keep coming back to this wouldn't be tolerated if it was happening to other populations. And I think that's, it's, it's inescapable that there are, that these things happen to certain populations and don't happen to others. Yeah. I think that's a great parting thought. We'll leave it there. All right. Well, we hope to see everyone next week. Yeah. uh, Until whenever we are able to get back on our feet, we hope everyone has a good start to your fall. Yeah. All right. See you, bud. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue, debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands and Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, 
I'm gonna let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Like American ideals Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find And change the lines head And folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz